Know your enemies and know your friends. A study of the book of Hebrews. What have you upgraded in the last three months and why? When you think about things where you've gotten something better or you've gotten a replacement, maybe it's something as serious as a new furnace or a new air conditioner, maybe new tires for your car, you've upgraded to something that is better than what you had. Maybe it's a phone or a computer. Maybe it was like back to school sales and you needed to upgrade the clothes that your children had because something wasn't uh, looking as good as it used to or maybe it wasn't the right size. When we think about why we upgrade things, sometimes it's just because there's a greater capability in, in the new thing, and so we want to have that extra capability. Maybe, maybe you're one of those people who just likes to upgrade because you like to have whatever is the latest. But I would say the vast majority of time, the, the reason that people upgrade or replace and get something new is because whatever they had wasn't accomplishing what they needed it to accomplish anymore. They needed to get rid of the old and move into the new. Now, you might be remembering that in the book of Hebrews, this was a huge theme. That there was an old way, and there was a new way, and the people the writer to the Hebrews was writing to wanted to go back to the old way, and he was trying to convince them, no, like, there was a purpose to that old way, but that is not the best way. That Jesus is the very best that there is. You might remember that the writer to the Hebrews wanted to talk about something. And then he told his readers, but I can't talk about this now because you're not spiritually mature. They were baby Christians. And what, what was it that made them baby Christians? Well, what he said was that they would have to go back and talk about the basics, that there wasn't a solid foundation of patience and eternal hope and faith that was behind that. So it gives them a little bit of a rebuke, and then after he gives them that rebuke and kind of redirection, here's what matters most, then he actually does talk about what he said he couldn't talk about. But now he spends almost four chapters talking about it. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and the first half of chapter 10. Do you remember what he said he wanted to talk about, but then couldn't talk about because of their spiritual immaturity, but then he did talk about it? It's a name. Melchizedek. Remember that priest, that uh, unusual, out-of-the-middle-of-nowhere priest who did not come from the family of Levi. In fact, Levi, in a way, because he was still in the body of his great-grandfather Abraham, when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, actually Levi, the family that got tithes, 10% offerings from the Jews, he actually gave a tithe to Melchizedek in a way. And so Melchizedek was greater in that regard, and he was the one who blessed Abraham, and so he was greater in that way, and didn't have a identified father or mother in a genealogy like all of the Levites had to have. All of these things match up to the special high priest, Jesus, who did not come from the family of Levi, and in reality was eternal and is the greatest ever, right? This is what the writer to the Hebrews wanted to focus on. This is what he wanted to tell them, the intricacies and beauty of how Jesus is absolutely everything that we need. So we've got kind of a wrap on that in chapter 10. And let's go ahead and look at what the writer to the Hebrews says. The law, that old thing, 
is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Can't get them to their goal. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? Like everybody arrived at their goal, so why do it again? But yes, the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are still being made at the time, and they are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God, Jesus said. So first he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. But then he said, Here I am, here I am I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second an upgrade, you might say. And by that will, we have been made holy, or we've been brought to our goal through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That first one I had mentioned brought to their goal. That, that first time was actually them being set apart as special. This one, made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That made holy is the word in the Greek for brought to their goal. So in Jesus, they have been brought to the finish line, right? The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. So, the old and now the new. The old covenant, now the new covenant. Remember I mentioned that from chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and now the first part of 10, it's all about Melchizedek being the model for this brand new high priest of a completely different sort. So this is what the writer to the Hebrews is all about. And he offers this new high priest who is Jesus because there was something inadequate about the old system. It couldn't get you to your goal. Now that might, might make you think that the old covenant was completely useless. As you were listening to those words read, maybe you're looking at them right now, what did the old system accomplish? Well, one of the things that it did, chapter 10, verse 3, it was an annual reminder of sin. So it was making sure they knew that sin was constantly being committed by God's people. But the other thing? The law is only a shadow of the good things that are to come. Chapter 10, verse 1. A shadow. Do you remember when we were talking about how God told uh, Moses that he had to make sure that tabernacle was built exactly like God had said because the tabernacle was a picture of heaven. That heavenly realities are playing out all the time with the tabernacle, the priests, etc. So, the Old Testament covenant was a shadow. Now, 
if you could imagine a wall, right, a very tall wall, and I'm walking behind that wall, and you're looking at the wall from the other direction. You can't see me at the moment because I'm behind the wall. And behind me is the sun, and it's shining. And so as I get close to the edge of the wall, you see first my head on the ground, the shadow of my head, and then you see the shoulders, and then you can tell that I have two arms, and then you see the rest of my body that I can walk, and then you finally, I get past the edge, and you don't see the shadow anymore. What happened? Well, you look at me, right? Nobody, after someone comes from behind a corner, keeps looking at the shadow. <laughs> just that's not the way it happens. We just instinctively look at the real thing. If you would think about the Old Testament in terms of when God said to Adam and Eve, I'm going to send a savior who's going to crush the head of the devil, the devil. It was just like the head had the form of it in a shadow on the ground was seen and they knew that it was coming. And then they get to Abraham who is promised that all nations of the world would be blessed through him. And now you can see the shoulders of the savior that is to come seen in the shadow. And then God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the Sinaitic Code, which had so many rules and regulations about temple worship and the priests and all the rest. Now you can see more of the body. And then we get to the prophets, Isaiah, who talks about by his wounds we will be healed. And you're starting to see the legs of the Messiah. And Jeremiah talks about a new covenant and forgiveness of sins. And finally, Malachi, the last of the, new, the Old Testament books, he talks about an Elijah who is to come, who... Was Elijah going to come back from the dead? Well, the disciples wondered this as Jesus was saying, it's about time, it's about time for me to do the work of the Messiah. And Jesus said, oh, the Elijah has already come. They did to him whatever they wanted. This was John the Baptist. Was the Elijah to come? And boy, once he came, the Messiah was right around the corner. So when he shows up and he then dies and rises, does it make sense for us to keep looking down at the shadow and to say, hmm, what, what's that like? What's the shadow look like? And you'd say, no way. I'm not looking at the shadow anymore. I'm looking at the real thing, right? When the real thing comes, the Messiah, you don't pay attention to the shadow anymore. This was the very thing that the Jewish people, the writer to the Hebrews was writing to, were being tempted to do. To go back and live in the old covenant, which was the shadow, and and let Jesus go. Like, they didn't need him anymore. You might wonder, well, why in the world would they have wanted to do that? And, and there's a reason for that. We'll run into that at the very end of our study for today. But for right now, obviously, it would not be right to go back and look at those things that were just picturing the Messiah that was to come. We've got the real thing. So, it did accomplish showing people their sins. It did accomplish being a shadow. What could the old system not accomplish? Well, it, it did not get rid of the guilt of their sins. There was a need to constantly and repeatedly offer the sacrifices. What could it not do? It could not get them to their goal of ultimately, in reality, having their sin forgiven. So we know all of the things that it wasn't able to do. For four chapters, the writer to the Hebrews has been sharing a message that required spiritual maturity to receive. Patience, faith, hope. If you look at verses 12 to 14 of Hebrews chapter 10, what is this message that the writer to the Hebrews so much wants to share with people? 
What is the ultimate in Christian truth? Verses 12 to 14, it talks about a priest who offered for all time one sacrifice for sins that he has brought to their goal forever those who are being brought to faith. The ultimate is Jesus giving us everything we need to be at peace. Now you might say, I don't know, like that feels like basic Christianity. I don't know that that feels like the ultimate in Christianity. The fact that I can be perfectly at peace because my sin is forgiven, that is something that is high level. How central that is. Just imagine for a moment a Christian young person, even had Christian education in high school, well, well prepared by parents and the word of God, goes off to school at a university far away from home. The first weekend, that individual is invited by some friends to a party, and the Christian is, is not planning to drink, certainly not to abuse alcohol. By God's grace, she's remained faithful to the Lord in that regard up to that point. She's 19 years old. She knows it's wrong. But as the night wears on and people are saying, oh, it's no big deal, and just taste this, and all of a sudden she's doing it. And by the time the night is over, she would anyone would acknowledge she not only drank wrong, but had too much to drink. The next morning, it is time for her to go to worship, and she is just feeling horrible. Like she did the opposite of what she would have in a class talked about doing back when she was with her Christian friends. She just can't bring herself to go. She stays home. Later that afternoon, she is still feeling horribly the guilt of what she has done, and she thinks, I need to call my mom and dad. I need to tell them. But she feels so ashamed because she was the leader in the family and among the children, and to have to admit something like this, she just feels like her life is ruined. And her parents call her up, and how's everything going? And she had composed herself, and she doesn't say anything about that. They say, well, did you get to church earlier today and she said well like like I'll, I'll admit it I, I did stay up too late last night and I I didn't go to church but but I will go next Sunday so that weekend she's invited again to a gathering she's telling herself I'm not going to do it this time and, and sure enough it happens again and the next morning she wakes up and and she doesn't go to church again she's feeling so far distant from God and then she gets invited that next weekend and she's thinking, I feel distant from God and I kind of didn't tell my parents the whole truth and now I feel distant from them. Like I feel different. I feel so lonely. And uh, the friends that are asking her to spend time, she doesn't have any concern about hanging out with them. And so she ends up going and, and what ends up happening, this, this fine Christian young lady is pulled little by little by little further and further away from the Lord. And, and what, what ultimately is at the heart of her getting distant? It's guilt. She did something she knew was wrong. And she doesn't think there could be an escape. Guilt is the enemy that the devil uses to pry us away from our dear Savior Jesus. You may know this just from your own experience, whether that's a memory in your past, a story like I've just described, or whether in so many other ways we fall into sin and we end up feeling this space, this separation between us and God, and we feel embarrassed and ashamed and, and just 
you might even go to church, but you just feel like you don't belong then. And when the pastor talks to you about the forgiveness of your sins, you're sure that that's not applied to you because he doesn't know what you did. And you are so ashamed. And little by little, you find no need to even go. It's guilt. If it ever has seemed strange that the ultimate in Christianity could be the fact that Jesus is the complete and total washing away of all that you have done wrong. Know what the ultimate weapon the devil tries to use against you is. To get you into sin, yes, but then to tell you you cannot be forgiven. My brothers and sisters, that is a lie. And we need this ultimate in Christianity. We need to know that it's only and all about Jesus. Jesus has completely paid not repeated over time, and for his own sin too, he was perfect. The death he died, he died for you, once and for all. In your baptisms, you are covered with the righteousness of Jesus. You can say to the devil, I know what I did and it was wrong, but I am clothed in Christ's righteousness. I can go to church on a Sunday unashamed because of Jesus. I can call my parents up and tell them, Mom and Dad, I feel so horrible about what I did. and Tell them the whole truth because they know that their mom and dad in the past did not just speak about sin, but they spoke about a Savior. That, boy, what joy it gives to parents to have a child confess sin, to be able to say, I forgive you. Jesus forgives you where all of a sudden all is in the open. And now the person is asked by one of these friends to go to a gathering on a Saturday night. And the, the Christian young lady says, I, I know I was there before and I know what I did and what I did was wrong. And I'm at peace in my heart. I praise God for his love and I don't want to do it again. I can't be there, right? Service to the Lord all of a sudden becomes free and joyful and unafraid. This is at the core of every bit of our spiritual struggle. Now, the writer to the Hebrews goes on, starting in verse 19. So, brothers, sisters, he says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new, new and living way opened for us through the curtain, this temple image, but Jesus is the one who ultimately gets us there. It's the body of Christ that is the way into the holy place of God. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, confidence, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the faith that we profess, to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. If I were to summarize Four key concepts in those verses. We've got an encouragement to draw near to God. We've got good works. We've got be with fellow Christians. And we've got the last day, the day approaching. What are, what are the connections between all of those? Well, the encouragement to draw near to God is connected to because we have confidence to go into the holy place. You've got the promise that your sin is forgiven. So you can be close to God. You can run to him. 
when I think about running to someone and feeling far away, but then, wow, like with all energy, I, I think of military families where maybe it's the father who has been separated from his family for six months. And so he's getting off a plane and there's a mother and there's a child there, a little child. And the mother tells the, the child that that's your dad because she knows it's been a while. Dad's home, right? The child maybe is still hanging on to mom a bit and just a little uncertain. And the dad sees that and boy, the dad feels maybe a little a little badly. and Maybe even a tear comes into his eye. And then the, the girl notices something about her father and all of a sudden realizes, this is my dad. She jumps out of her mother's arms and she runs across the tarmac into the arms of her father who hugs her so tightly. Your father loves you. He has assured you that you can have all confidence that every sin you've ever committed, those known to others, those not known, the ones only known to you, your sin has been paid for. The Lord says, draw near to me. To hear that is for you to jump out of your mother's arms and run on the tarmac to jump into the arms of your father, your heavenly father, who gives you such a big hug. And and as he gives you the, the big hug of, you're mine. As we draw near to the Lord with a heart washed, we're hanging on to our hope. Heaven is mine. And we are thinking about how we can encourage other people to do good works. We're so excited. We want to serve the Lord with our lives. And we want our friends and neighbors, our fellow Christians, to do the same. That, And maybe this was kind of a COVID thing or who knows, but... There were, by necessity, churches began broadcasting their services online. And, and maybe it's even happened to you. To, you think, well, you know, I don't need to go to church anymore because I can always watch it online. Or maybe even the fact that you can watch Bible study uh, material and encouragement online like you're doing right now. You think, well, you know, I think I'm just going to be that. I'll be a Christian who watches everything online. This is a wonderful verse to remind us that while that is a huge blessing, right, we thank God for online the reason we go to church with our brothers and sisters in Christ is because we want to encourage them, to spur them on to love and good deeds, to get to know them, to become their friend, to find out where their strengths lie, how we can fill in where their weaknesses are, that we can encourage them with their strengths. I've got a way that I think you could serve the Lord, right? We're encouraging each other. And the reason we do that is because the last day is right around the corner. We don't know how much time we have left. We want to use all the time that we have to be a blessing to others to serve the Lord. Now, the next set of verses here are quite a sobering warning. For Christians, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there's no sacrifice for sins left, but only judgment and fire. You reject the law of Moses in the old days, the writer to the Hebrews says, then you die without mercy. What about if you mess with Jesus? If you trample the Son of God underfoot? If you treat as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant? Like, what if we say, Jesus doesn't matter. I think I can get along without him. I don't need to value, treasure, honor, worship. No. Then what happens? God says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You say, I don't think that's an appropriate word for a Christian. That seems very serious and severe, and that is exactly what it is, and it is exactly the word that you and I need to hear. We need to know that 
The devil's desire is to get us to a place, like a college student needs to know this, all of us need to know, can get us to a place where we are trampling the Son of God underfoot, treating him as an unholy, unworthy, unnecessary, don't need to worship, whatever it is, thing. The last day will come. I need to frighten myself when my wicked flesh tells me that it is no big deal to do what? Like, what are we watching out for as a Christian? What we're watching out for is trampling the Son of God underfoot, treating as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant. That's all that he's been talking about when starting off with Melchizedek, that ultimate in Christianity. Jesus is so much everything we need. He is the thing that when you're struggling with guilt because you did something yesterday that is bothering you and it's all you can think about and it makes you not want to go to church and it makes you not want to, you feel uncomfortable reacting and interacting with the people that maybe you hurt, right? Guilt drives us away from the Lord. To know that you are forgiven is to know that the last thing you, and it's through Jesus, the last thing you ever want to do is drive away Jesus. Praise the Lord for our Savior. Listen to this. You hit this point, verse 32 in chapter 10 of Hebrews, and if you hadn't been following along with what we've been talking about over the, these various uh, presentations, this might catch you, this would. When you read through Hebrews up to this point, you might be wondering, okay, like what's causing all this? What is the reason that these Christians who have a Jewish background have to be so encouraged to not let go of Jesus? Here it is. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. So when they were just brand new Christians, when you stood your ground in the great contest, in a great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were treated that way. You sympathized with those in prison and accepted the confiscation of your property like people because they hated Christians were stealing, taking stuff from them. But you said, okay, like I'm suffering, but oh wow, I so love Jesus. <laughs> And why? Because you knew that you had better and lasting possessions. You are, they were looking forward to heaven. They could lose everything, even their own lives, because they had heaven. Do you know what the writer to the Hebrews tells them now? He says, don't throw away this confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. It seems apparently they were under pressure again. They were suffering again. Stick with it. Stick with the Lord. Don't go back. What seems to be the case is so often the persecution in the early church came from Jews who rejected Jesus. This was the regular pattern when the Apostle Paul did mission work. He'd go to a city and he'd go to the synagogue and then finally they'd get upset at him, the leaders of the synagogue, and Christians would, those who had been brought to faith, would hang on to Paul and the, the other Jews would try to kill him. It happened again and again. And was it happening here too? Right? Those who had the revelation from God of the Old Testament were not loving Jesus. It wasn't because they were Jews that this was a problem. It was because they had rejected Jesus that there was a problem. And they hated Christians and these Christians were under pressure. They're encouraged. Stick with it. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. You'll get to heaven. Stick with the Lord. He who is coming will not delay. He is coming. My righteous one will live by faith. Trust me, if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. Don't retreat. Don't deny Jesus. 
We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, the writer to the Hebrews says to his brothers and sisters. You are not that. You do not back away. You are one who believes and is saved. That's you. Stand strong. Recognize the threats that can come your way. The feeling like you don't belong because everyone around you is confessing something that doesn't match what the Bible says and you so much want to just agree with them and not have it become an issue. But no, don't. Persevere. Be willing to accept not being looked up to, ridicule, even the loss of life. You have the greatest treasure ever. You know about Melchizedek. You know the one Melchizedek was a picture of, the real point of Melchizedek. You know the one who is the perfect high priest. Jesus has brought you to your goal as he has forgiven every one of your sins. Because of this, you have eternal hope. Let go? No way. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask, first, that you would give us the regular reassurance as we recognize our sin, that we are forgiven. Dear Lord, we ask that you would give us the strength to accept persecution because we know that we have a reward by your grace that is beyond compare. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.